Well, good morning, Church of the Red Door. Uh, welcome. Uh, we're so pleased and privileged to be with you this morning in your homes or wherever you might be watching this. Uh, this week was a tough week. Uh, Church at the Red Door uh, lost uh, our beloved Gary Ames. It was shocking, sudden to many of us. He had been struggling in some ways, but thought it was somewhat contained. And I got word this week that uh, he was not in good condition and he and he passed this week. Many of you will be shocked to hear that news, as was I. Uh, even here in our own family, we lost uh, Laura's uncle. Our parents live with us, His uh, Ron's brother. Uh, you know, death is all around us. And uh, it's devastating. It hurts our souls. We're saddened in so many different ways. I don't know how people proceed through life without, the world may call as we've been looking at this uh, fairy tale. Christianity is just a fairy tale. It's a wish fulfillment. It's, it's a desire. It's the inability to cope with the reality that we're nothing, that we're just some kind of evolved uh, moon dust uh, that has some sense of consciousness for a few years and then is eradicated from not only human history, but then eventually this earth will explode and everything will go back and the universe may implode again. Who knows? But uh, we're just uh, here for a brief moment. So uh, carpe diem, right? Let's uh, seize the moment. I don't know how people live in light of the death that surrounds us, not just geopolitical death and, and individual death, friends, family, just the whole sense of death that runs throughout a fallen creation. I don't know how people... I, don't, I do not understand how people get up in the morning, and many don't. Many commit suicide. This whole coronavirus has led so many to, uh, the suicide rate has gone up substantially as they've become isolated, and it just seems so hopeless. You know, fairy tales in themselves are a sense of hope. Good wins over evil. There is a hope, a future. And as we looked at last week, Jesus, in Jesus, and what we might call Christianity or Jesus followership, is the fairy tale that came true. It is the good overcoming evil. It is the power and the, the amazing direction that God has given us for life on this planet. And as we've seen uh, last week, as we saw last week, I should say, it's this, it's this echo that is in the deepest parts of us. I alluded to it again last week. Uh, animals don't have this sense. They're not worried. They're just living in the, in the moment, the food, whatever's next. I, pet me if you're a dog, I mean, whatever it is. And, and here we are with this strong sense of, no, there's something different about humanity. And that reason that you feel that, even if you may be watching this and consider yourself maybe an agnostic or an atheist, someone who says, there is no God, or I don't know, but it's unknowable. I'm just telling you that that echo in your soul uh, is validated and comes to its fulfillment in Jesus. And so we're going to proceed forth this morning in Luke chapter 6 as we look a little bit more about what, what does it look like, and again, I'm using this uh, allegory of Alice in Wonderland, what does it look like when you go down that rabbit's hole? Uh, there's a whole other dimension. You're exposed to a completely different realm. We've talked about it very often here at Church at the Red Door as the unseen realm, but there is a battle raging in the unseen realm that we know intuitively is there, but we can't quite get our fingers around it. And now Jesus bursts onto the scene suddenly, as we saw last week, suddenly this promise that has been promised for hundreds of years, 
here's the Messiah, not only of Israel, but the Savior of the world. And now he begins to describe what it looks like when you go down that rabbit's hole. What does that look like? And yes, there is a, there is a uh, red witch and there's a white witch of, uh, again, of epic proportion. There's a battle, there's enslaved people, uh, and, and it changes. It changes the way, and Alice reemerges into the scene realm, and it changed her whole understanding, not only of herself. Look, I don't know. Maybe you're here this morning and watching this, and, and you just see yourself as just some rambling chance. And I'm just telling you right now, you are not. You are created in the very image of God. This is Genesis 1.26. Let us create man and woman. Let us create them in our own image. Imago Dei. You are created. There is a purpose for your life. The creator of your soul loves you. And if you will travel with Jesus, follow him, and again, we're using this analog, and you'll follow him down this hall, you're going to discover a world that is so upside down, so strange, so different than what we see in this fallen world, this death trap that we're in called planet Earth. You're going to see things in a whole new light. But let me tell you something. It's shocking. Can you imagine a place where and again, this is the eternal state. This is how the heavenlies operate now. This is how the presence of God operates now. There's no envy. There's no strife. There's no social media stuff where people uh, vault into the public domain and everybody knows their names and they don't even necessarily present any kind of skill. I mean, it's just uh, there's the political challenges we can see now, uh, right now, what's going on in the Middle East with Israel and and the Palestinians and all the war and the rockets going back and forth. And do pray, by the way, for our friends at Israel College of the Bible. One of their professor's apartments was hit by a missile and he escaped with his life. Uh, it was unbelievable. A man lost his life right there in, in their own apartment building. Uh, death is all around us. And now Jesus is going to give us insight into how it op the operations of, and again, using this allegory, the operations down the rabbit's hole, if you will. What happens in the kingdom? What is it like to truly be human? All right, are you ready? Okay, here we go. This morning, I'm going to, again, pick up in Luke chapter 6, and we're going to read verse 20 through 26, and we're going to go back and try to unpack it. Are you ready? Lord Jesus, I just ask that you be with us. I, first of all, be with the Ames family, and uh, just just be with them as they as they grapple with uh, the passing of Gary. Just, we're, we're mourning with them, Lord, be with that family. And give us insight this morning. Give us deep insight into your word and into your ways. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Luke chapter six, verse 20. Now, again, Jesus has, remember, come down off the mountain with his now newly appointed 12, and he turns and faces his disciples and he begins to teach them. Now, you got to realize he's about to send them into, um, into all of Israel to begin to proclaim the gospel. And now he's going to teach them this is not so much how to get into the kingdom, but what it is to be in the kingdom. All right. So this is not so much about what theologians would call soteriology, the study of salvation. So this is not how you get in. This is That's only the atonement. That's Jesus buried, crucified, the blood covering us, and our faith into that. That's how we're 
That's how we're invited into the, to go down the rabbit hole. But what does it look like? I mean, I hope you get that. That's so important not to get the cart before the proverbial horse. So Luke chapter 6, verse 20. And turning his gaze toward his disciples, he began to say, again, this is the Sermon on the Plain, very similar, probably different, a little bit more compact than the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are you when you are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will again one day laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you. Blessed? Happy? Divine joy? Blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. For in the same way their fathers used to treat the prophets, Excuse me, verse 23, be glad in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. I mean, are you, are you getting this this morning? Blessed, divine joy, happiness. That's what that really that word means. The Greek here, you're, you're, this is a divine joy that goes way beyond circumstance. When you're insulted and ostracized for the, for the sake of the Son of Man, for his name, when you're holding it, you're hallowing his name and you're, you're not taking his name in vain. You're always, your whole life is constructed in such a way to make Jesus famous in the earth and to be glorified. Well, it will come with persecution. But in that day, leap for joy, for great is your reward in heaven. How bizarre, how strange, how upside down this rabbit hole looks. Now verse 24, but woe to you who are rich, for you are receiving your comfort in full. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, and you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the exact same way. Now, this is going to necessitate some unpacking. Now, there's a beauty in Jesus' teaching, which he just, um, Jewish rabbis used to call this stringing beads. You would just go along and he would just, they would hit you with this. And before you even had a chance to really contemplate it, they would hit you with something else. These, almost like a PowerPoint with nothing in between, just bam, 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 bam. And that's what Jesus seems to be doing. And I'm sure many walked away perplexed because in their view, you have to understand the view was if you were blessed by God, then it led to your prosperity and your health and everything else. And if you weren't, it led to your demise. And in fact, in some ways, well, that you, you made your own bed. If you were suffering, there must be sin. That's what we see in the whole Job's friends uh, saga. If you're suffering, it must be the case. And by the way, this is the way Hinduism essentially works. There's the caste system. And it's a, it's a devastating system. Let, let's be clear. If someone is struggling out on the streets, poverty, ill-fed, etc., etc., then they are there for a purpose. They must have lived a bad previous life. And their suffering is just, and it just emboldens the wealthy to, to have this class system, this caste system. This is not what Jesus is saying. But we need to be clear. Of course, there's an upside-down 
element to this, but let's go in a little bit more in detail. So when are you most blessed? Well, when you're poor. Well, what does that mean? Well, Jesus used a word in Greek here that doesn't just mean that you just don't have enough. This is the worst kind of poverty. The language he uses here is the worst kind of poverty, begging bread. I mean, can't do anything on your own volition. I mean, you're desperate just for any kind of provision, even for your ability to be sustained on earth. You would need a handout. I mean, this is that kind of poverty. It's not just someone who's not able to kind of live the life they want. This is someone who is completely and utterly dependent upon those around them to even survive. Is Jesus lifting up this, is advocating a kind of hunger, literal hunger and poverty and everything else? Is that what he's advocating, that in some way there's a, there's a spiritual beauty in poverty and a spiritual beauty and not being fed where you're starving to death? Is that what Jesus is doing? I think the answer is pretty clearly no. Now, I will tell you that he's also telling those in a literal sense, you know, if you are poor, your entrance is a little bit easier. We know Jesus was clear. It's difficult for a wealthy man to enter the kingdom, to go down this rabbit's hole in the first place. It's a very difficult thing to do. But you have divine joy and happiness when there is this poverty of what? Poverty of spirit. And in fact, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus in Matthew 5, 6, 7, and there, uh, Jesus actually used the language of poverty in spirit, not just poor. Poverty in spirit, and that's important to see. It's an extreme poverty, a desperation. The, again, the language that Jesus is using here. So I think what's important, let's, let's look at this. It's, it's, it's a shocking thing to say, first of all. And his, again, his listeners must have been radically perplexed about what Jesus was trying to communicate here. I want to go back again into their, their Old Testament scriptures, the only scriptures that existed at the time of Jesus' teaching. And let's look at something and see if we can't develop an idea about what Jesus is re referencing here in terms of poverty. Psalm 16, verse 2. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have nothing. This is, again, absolutely spiritual deprivation. I have nothing. I am completely and utterly impoverished of spirit. Without you, apart from you, I'm nothing. I have nothing. I, 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 I am a I'm in a complete deficit in the spiritual realm. Many come to me and say, you know, I'm doing pretty well. I'm a pretty spiritual person. I've got a lot of my ducks in a row. And it's interesting to hear a little bit about Jesus. Can I just tell you, there's no entrance there. That person's not blessed. You don't, again, take Jesus and add him as a dimension of understanding. He is the fullness of our understanding about life and and liberty and the spirit and everything we understand about ourselves because he's the creator of all things. He is not an addendum to our life. Without him, we are at a complete and utter deficit. Romans 7 verse 24, Paul says this about himself, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? Now this was a religious elite, Saul who became Paul, he was a studied Pharisee. He was a Pharisee among Pharisees as he described himself. And he listed his credentials 
And then he went on to say, it's all garbage. It means nothing relative to knowing Jesus. Here's a religious elite. People would look at him and say, this is the exact antithesis of poverty of spirit. Here's a spiritual leader. And here's Paul's language. I'm nothing but a wretch. (laughs) I'm nothing but a wretch. Who's going to release me from this body of death? Can you hear Paul enters the kingdom because of his ability to see his own apartness, his separateness, uh, his, his poverty. John 15, 5, Jesus couldn't have been more clear. I'm the vine and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. I don't know how more clearly Jesus could have spoken. You come with nothing. Now, why is Jesus saying, blessed are the poor? Blessed are those who recognize, who buy into what Jesus is saying about our spiritual condition. You're setting yourself up for divine joy and happiness beyond any ability to comprehend it. But you must enter the rabbit's hole at a com- as a complete self-identified wretch with nothing to offer. You don't come to God and say, look at all that I have to offer. You come as someone who, Paul again describes it as, who will set me free from this body of death? I'm part of the problem. Isaiah, some 700 years before, listen to Isaiah about our you know, our wonderful spiritual activities. Isaiah 64, 6, for all of us have become like one who is unclean. This is not unique to Jesus. God had always been saying this through the prophets. All our righteous deeds, those things that we think give us spiritual, you know, have we have spiritual acumen that we've really risen to a certain level. He said all our righteous deeds, they're like a filthy garment. And all of us wither like a leaf and our iniquities and like the wind, they just carry us away. This is not unique to Jesus. God had always been saying more directly to Israel. Israel, your righteous deeds before me, they're nothing. You don't understand my holiness, my other than-liness as we've discussed before. You just don't comprehend it. So now Jesus comes on the scene and said, blessed are you who are poor. Blessed are you. You're right where you need to be because now when I speak, you're going to be able to hear. To others who already feel spiritually accomplished, apart from Christ, these words are going to seem, they're just going to go right over their head. They just aren't going to be able to comprehend them. So you're blessed if you acquiesce with what Jesus is saying here. You know, if you agree with these statements in your spirit, even this morning, you know what? That's me. I just, I'm a miserable wretch. I have failed. Now, if if you've been born again, you still recognize there's a battle, but now you have the very seed of God in you. But if you've never really received Jesus by that, just saying, I choose to follow him, and you've been baptized and filled with the spirit of the living God, If you identify with this, this entry down the hall, if you will, is available to you even right now. Just tell him, Lord, I'm, I'm, I'm that wretch.
That's what the thief on the cross did. We deserve what we're getting. He doesn't deserve it. Will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? And Jesus simply says, today you'll be with me in paradise. How complicated was that? But do you see that that one thief identified as a wretch and the other one was just hurling insults at Jesus in mockery? It all starts with poverty of spirit. Do you remember the, the, the movie Goodwill Hunting with Matt Damon and Robin Williams? I, it was a really powerful mo- movie. There was a very uh, powerful, powerful moment, a scene in that movie where you know Matt Damon had been abused as a child and Robin Williams grabs him on the shoulder and begins to hug him and look him right, you know, they got face to face and Matt Damon got furious. He said, it's not your fault. And Matt Damon's a genius, by the way, off the charts genius. And he says, uh, it's not your fault. And he goes, I know, I know, I know. And no, you don't understand. It's not your, Robin Williams continues to repeat, it's not your fault. No, 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 I understand, yeah, I understand. No, you don't, son, look me in the eye. You don't understand, it's not your fault. And now he begins to get angry and Robin Williams just pursues and pursues and finally he just breaks. Now there was a beautiful healing moment in that moment, but that refrain runs throughout the earth. And everyone says, again, I, I'm, that was the scene that I remember and that was a healing moment, but typically when the, the refrain is, it's not my fault, it's not my, in that case it really wasn't his fault. But we often say, well, it's not my fault and, and the world and, and the psychiatric world and it's not your fault it's not your fault it's not your fault it's not your fault and we get that and we feel like now we're the oppressed always and never the oppressor and it's a little bit of why we are struggling so in our political climate in many ways but you know the reality is Jesus is saying when you finally say it is my fault I've heard it said before when Some people say, well, it is my fault, but now it's not my problem because I've handed it over to Jesus to transform me. Then comes life and liberty, and others are saying, it's not my fault, it's not my fault, but inevitably, it ends up being their problem for the rest of their lives. They're never able to escape the enslavement to having other people have control over their lives and them feeling as if they are oppressed. Look, we have to understand, it is my fault, but it's not my problem in Christ. It's the Spirit will now transform me. I hand it over to Him. But when we take the position of, it's not my fault, it's not my fault, then let me just tell you, it will forever be your problem to solve. And many never can escape that vortex. It'll drag you down. It'll it'll limit you in so many different ways. So Jesus says, blessed are those who are poor. And then he says next, blessed are the hungry. You know, in the Sermon on the Mount again, he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Again, let me just be clear. I I think we know that Jesus is not simply advocating that if you don't have any money to buy food and you don't have any food, then you're gonna be divinely happy forever. I mean, I just don't think that's the point. And we get a little bit more clarity on the Sermon on the Mount. Again, I think these are multiple teachings. Uh, Jesus was an itinerant preacher. He would go from place to place and time to time and different audiences. And I think these are just capturing different uh, fragments or full portions of these uh, messages. I don't think they're identical. But I think we get the spirit of it on the Sermon on the Mount. So what are we hungering for? What should we hunger? What would make life a divine joy? 
when we hunger for God and we hunger for his nature. I want to be like him. I'm tired of being like me. I'm tired of the selfishness and the self-focus and the the cynical nature and uh, of that I feel in my own soul and my, you know, I feel ex- exclusivity and all this pride and all this garbage I feel. And uh, sometimes I want to murder people. At least I use my mouth to do it. And I, I'm a slanderer. I hate it all. I hunger for righteousness. Blessed are you. Now you're talking. This is what Jesus is meaning here. Psalm 42, 1. Again, a good thousand years before the time of Jesus. As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you. Can you see the thirst, the hunger, the driving? He, he likens it to a physical need here. Hunger and thirst, let me tell you something. They will drive you. If you're starving or you're dying of thirst, it's amazing what links you'll go to. It's self-preservation. I've just I've got to eat. I've got to have something to drink. Argue that way about God as you are hungering for righteousness. Then let me just say, it's, it's, it could not be more clear. You are in exactly the right position. If you're hungering for that this morning, Jesus is saying, blessed are you. The kingdom is available to you. You know, when we look at this poverty of spirit and this hunger and thirsting, it's these that can enter the kingdom. This is the prerequisite to going down the rabbit's hole, to entering the kingdom, if you will. We're just using this example. But this is the entry point. I have nothing. And I so thirst to be good, to be righteous. I see people who are, I want to be like them, and yet I I find myself caught in this, as Paul said, this body of death. Who will set me free, he goes on to say, and it's, it's Jesus. Blessed are you when you weep and mourn. Now, there is an element to this that part of a Christian community, you know, we celebrate with those who are celebrating and we're mourning with those who mourn. We're mourning this week. Hopefully you're mourning with Laura and, uh, and her family and the loss of her uncle and you're mourning with the Ames and others. So, you know, we've, I, I just, I got up this morning and I was talking, I'm just so tired of losing people. I was talking to my, my good friend Butch Seal this morning, but, and I just said, Butch, I'm just so tired. He said, I know I've lost probably 20 people that were so precious to me this last year. He goes, I just, it's just all around me. We do mourn. And part of being part of a community is not to isolate yourself. And just so you're, you know, some people have never even gone into a, an ICU unit or a hospital other than maybe some really close family member. But being part of a community, you're drawn into the lives of others. I have been weeping over the loss of these people, weeping over the loss. I just couldn't, you know, really, because I'm living life in union. Common union is what community means, common unity. I'm living in life in common unity with these people. And when people succeed, I celebrate. But when they, so there's an element to that, but there's also a spiritual revolution that Jesus is talking about here. I hope you have to grasp this. This desperation of weeping. Listen to what uh, Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 7.4. The mind of the wise is in the house of mourning. This is again. But people think, well, Jesus just brought this out of nowhere. No, this has always been God's heart. While the mind of fools, well, it's always in the house of pleasure. 
The foolish man is just always looking for the next fix, the next vacation, the next great restaurant, the next something, the next thing that they're gonna buy, the next, and they're just constantly consumers, consumers. Why? Because they refuse to weep and mourn. And part of this defining what's down this rabbit's hole, what this kingdom looks like, what it means to truly be a human being, especially in a fallen world. Now they're coming today when there aren't gonna be any more tears but we're experiencing the kingdom now, but only in part. One day we'll experience it in its, in its fullness. But for now, this weeping and this mourning, over what? Well, in some ways, over my sin, over what I had seen, the poverty of spirit I weep over. I didn't say, well, I have poverty of spirit. It's too bad. No, but we look at our sin and we're repulsed by it. We just, we just again, desperately mourn over our spiritual condition. Psalm 30, verse 5. God's anger is but for a moment. His favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may last for the night, but a shout of joy comes. A shout of joy comes in the morning. Now, that can mean that, yes, you'll get over things when we lose people, and eventually, you know, the grieving will begin to abate a little bit. Uh, that's partially right, but I think this is. In this world, there's always going to be mourning. We're always going to be surrounded by death. We're always going to be surrounded by people who don't know Jesus, and we weep and we mourn. I've got friends and people in our family that don't know Jesus. I weep and I mourn over it. I want that more. And Jesus is saying, blessed are you. There's a deep sense of divine joy and happiness when these accompany not only your own recognition of your own sin, but also mourning for those who don't have not yet entered the kingdom. You know, it's interesting because Isaiah 53 identifies Jesus as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Jesus himself, on his time, during his time on earth, was described by Isaiah 700 years before he came to planet earth as Here's coming a man, this Messiah figure who will die for the sins, being the lamb led to slaughter. That's that Isaiah 53 passage. And it identifies him as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Jesus was one who mourned and wept. Are you sharing the sufferings of Christ? Do you weep and mourn? Are you just looking for the next fix? Bigger, better, faster, you know, new vacation, this and that and that. Nothing wrong with going on vacation. Nothing wrong with going on a date night and having a beautiful meal, trust me. But our, our settled disposition, folks, as followers of Jesus is recognizing first our own deficit and then our mourning over the entirety of the world. Now, again, Paul in his uh, second letter to the Corinthians, chapter seven, he said there's a certain kind of sorrow, it's a worldly sorrow, it's just when we see the death and it actually leads to death. But there is a godly kind of sorrow that leads to repentance. You may be watching this this morning and you may go, you know, I just, you're making me feel really bad about myself. I, 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 don't, I don't like what I'm hearing this morning. Maybe I, maybe I am at a spiritual deficit. Can I say that kind of sorrow Paul calls godly sorrow? And it's a beautiful thing. That's what Jesus is trying to say here. When we weep and mourn, there is a godly, God-inspired sorrow that is a positive, that leads to a divine joy and happiness that you couldn't possibly fathom. A godly sorrow will lead you to turning around and going the other way, going down the rabbit's hole, 
following Jesus to the ends of the earth, the abundant life that he called it. It always starts and in some ways is accompanied in this life by weeping and mourning. You know, it's interesting, the nation of Israel, how did they come out? Remember, they were a template for us when they came out of Egypt and under Pharaoh, a type of Satan, Egypt, a type of the world. When they came out, how did that start? What began the process of their salvation? Was it weeping and mourning? It's a spiritual parallel for us. It's a, it's a template for us. As, as when Israel, Israel, Israel's story is our story. I say it seemingly every week. This is how we can understand and, and, and grow in understanding the Old Testament. Exodus chapter 2, verse 23 through 26. Listen to this. Now, it came about in the course of those many days that the king of Egypt... Now, remember, this is 1,500 years before the time of Jesus, roughly, during the time of Moses. And it came about in the course of those many days that the king of Egypt died. And the sons of Israel sighed because of the bondage, and they cried out... Now, here's the question. They mourned, they wept, they pleaded, they cried out. Now, is this a good thing or a bad thing? Well, and their cry for help because of their enslavement or their bondage, it rose up to God. So God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the sons of Israel and God took notice of them. Now, here again, here's weeping and mourning. They're going to exit the world, go through their baptism, the Red Sea, and go into the wilderness and eventually into their, into their calling. It, was it a good thing or a bad thing that they were weeping and mourning and crying out because of their bondage? It was a great thing. It led to their, it led to their salvation, their, their exodus from Egypt. That's, where, that's what it says, the book of Exodus. They were exiting the world and, in a sense, going down the rabbit's hole. Now, we know many of them failed through the process, etc. But the, the point being, is it a good thing or a bad thing to, work, to weep and to mourn? And, and Jesus, I think, was very clear. Blessed are you. Blessed are those who mourn and weep. Blessed are you. Because you're going to be comforted. So again, now are we talking, does it, some people would see this as um, a social justice revolution. Like we got to, if somebody's rich, we got to take their money away and give it to the poor. If somebody's poor, you know, well, it's good to be poor. I mean, there have been social revolutions that have happened. Uh, Marxism led to communism, you know, and all these kinds of things. And, and this trying to create this egalitarian thing. And, and look, Jesus is all about suffering people. He cares deeply about those in poverty. And the church's task has always been through the church to bring, to bring relief and a part of church at the red door. You know, I think of Mama's House and Narrow Door and Coachella Valley Rescue Mission and all the things that we endeavor to do. And then with the gospel around the world, whether it be, you know, Moscow Seminary or Israel College of the Bible, different things that we're involved in and many other things. Of course, that's the task of the church, but you've got to realize what Jesus is preaching here. This is a spiritual revolution. This is not calling us to overthrow the political systems of our world. It's called to let's do a revolution on the inside of us and then take the gospel and see that proliferate in the lives of others. Right? You, can't, you can't miss that. If you think that this is some kind of just social justice statement that he's making that is going to inspire political action in some way, I think you're missing the entirety of the point. So now, 
as we start to wind this down, we're, we're going to look now at the woes. It's strange, you know, this woe, this uai uh, is what the, in, in the Greek here, this this woe to you who are what? Who are rich and well-fed and those who, you know, laugh and are so joyous and woe to you where everybody speaks well of you. Why would he say that? I mean, aren't these positive things to be well provided for? Again, you have to think of these things uh, in the context in which Jesus is talking about it. But here's the bottom line. It is absolutely true. When we become satisfied, when we become overtly satisfied, we're always going to struggle. When you're too satisfied in this world, blessedness seems a million miles away, at least the blessedness that Jesus is talking about. Again, as I alluded to, it's very difficult. You know, it's difficult for a wealthy man to enter the kingdom. We know that. But materialism can take its deep claws and wrap them around and choke out the life of the life that God wants to give us. Now, Hosea had seen this again about writing about the same time as Isaiah. Again, Israel's story is our story. Listen to the words of Hosea. Hosea 13, 4 through 6. Yet I have been, uh, yet I have been the Lord your God since the land of Egypt. Okay, so God's saying, I've been your God since I brought you out of Egypt. And you were not to know any God except me. For there is no Savior besides me. I cared for you in the wilderness and in the land of drought. And then catch this. But then they had their pasture. They became satisfied. And being satisfied, their heart, well, their heart became proud. And they forgot about me. Well, uh, materialism, folks, can sink its claws into us. Uh, and by materialism, I'm just saying a materialistic worldview. I've got, I've, it's, it, you know, it's carpe diem. It's seize the day. I was playing golf the other day and on the golf cart, they had this little thing and it was saying, you know, carpe diem. I mean, like, that's, you don't often see that, you know, on a, on a golf cart. And it, and it said, join this club, right? So seize the day. I mean, you've got, you've got one life to live. You've got to live it now. Uh, it's, uh, there's only one life. You don't, don't, carpe diem really means don't put all your hope in the future. Take it today. Take it by the reins. Live your life. Uh, there's only one. Go for it. Enjoy everything there is. And now Jesus comes along and said, wait a minute. You're actually blessed if you're mourning and weeping. And, and the wise man, he's in the house of mourning. He's not always in the house of feasting and laugh and joy and, right? You say, well, I don't know. This sounds like a, this sounds like a very ascetic lifestyle. Look, being in the kingdom is hard. It's hard to live in the earth and at the same time in the kingdom because there's such a clash, a conflict of kingdoms, of course. And what does that lead to? It leads us to being ostracized and where people speak poorly of us. It, it always will, folks. There's no way not to have that be the case. You know, if you think about it, as you think about being hated for Jesus' name, you know, you know, Paul had told Timothy, he said, Timothy, those who desire a godly life, what does that mean? Those who are hungering and thirsting for righteousness will be persecuted. So here's this strange, how, when Jesus kind of finishes up that last portion in the first section of the Sermon on the Plain, he, he says, look, he said, of course you're going to be persecuted. If you're hungering and thirsting for righteousness, 
you will be persecuted. Woe to you when all men speak well of you. For they used to speak well of the, the prophets before them, right? Uh, but you've got, you, we have to get it in our minds that when we are in absolute pursuit of God's righteousness, it's gonna come in conflict with the world around us. There's no way that that's not gonna be. I, I've always said, when I, I remember first reading that decades ago, 30 plus odd years, I remember being at Rice University and as I was studying and I was reading my Bible a lot and I came across that, you know, those who desire a godly life will be persecuted. And I went, well, nobody's ever persecuted me for his name. What would that even mean? What would that, I don't know. I don't know what that would mean. I remember, I'll never forget as long as I live. I was playing in the BMW on the European tour. I played four or five times. I'd gotten a sponsor's invitation. And uh, I was walking down with a guy from uh, England and we were, uh, I don't, it was the third, I think it was on the weekend that we played together. Uh, actually made a cut, rarity. Uh, and, and here I was walking down the fairway and I remember this guy and I remember overhearing them talk about Bernard Longer. And they were just, uh, they were assaulting his character and everything else about how he's just, you know, thinks he's Mr. Christian guy and blah, blah, blah. And I, and I remember, and they were absolutely dragging his name through the mud because of his bold stance for Jesus, which quite frankly was very rare and to this day somewhat is on the European tour. And I, was, and I was kind of thinking, well, nobody's ever saying that about me. It really, I'm telling you, it, it hit me. And, and I realize now that, well, maybe I wasn't pursuing, thirsting, hungering for righteousness that would then lead to people maybe insulting me in some way or disparaging me or saying things behind my back or to my face. And I've had it all now. Uh, but that certainly there was a day when that was never the case. So I want to take you as, again, as we wind this down, uh, many of you will know well the message of Laodicea. This was a message to these churches in Revelation 3. I think it's appropriate in various times and places. If I were to describe what most closely resembles the place that I live in the 21st century, first of all, in the West, this is the American experiment kind of thing, and we're living in the West. Then I live in one of the most affluent uh, many of you live in the most one of the most affluent places, at least during a portion of the year. It's kind of the Palm Springs, Celebrity Hollywood kind of spot. And I'm going, ah, this is probably we're probably closer to Laodicea than we are anything. Now listen to what Jesus said. This is Jesus' words to that church. And I think it rings true through all those who have well-fed and well-provided for and all that. Listen, he says, to the angel of the church at Laodicea, right, the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of creation of God says this, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. Boy, it gets me sometimes. I don't want to be lukewarm. I wish that you were cold or hot, but because you're lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I'm going to spit you some, vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say I'm rich, I have become wealthy, I have need of nothing. Now remember what we just seen. Jesus was very clear. Until you recognize, spiritually speaking, you have nothing. But if you're like, we're rich, we have need of nothing. That's what materialism does sometimes. We, we sense, we, we feel emboldened before God because we might be successful spiritually. I mean, uh, financially or, or power-wise or somewhere on the earth that we're kind of favored status people 
somehow that will translate into what God wants. And until we realize, as Jesus is saying here to the church at Laodicea, he says, you, have, you say we have need of nothing. He says, and, and you don't know that you are again, he uses this exact language, wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Now, is he meaning literally poor, blind, naked? No, spiritually speaking, you're unclothed. You're not clothed in the righteousness of me. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed and I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Again, this is spiritual language. He, this is figurative language. We have to understand that. They weren't literally poor, blind, naked, but spiritually they were completely uncovered and they sensed that, well, they didn't sense any deficit at all. Are you catching this? This is, this is really a church. Does this, does this hit us? Those whom I love, I reprove and I discipline. He loves you. Look, if, if, this, is, if this is hitting home, he, loves, he reproves and disciplines those he loves. Therefore, be zealous. I mean, emotionally, overtly, like I got to get this taken care of today and repent. That's what he says, this church. Change your mind. Let's go the other direction. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens it, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant him to sit down with me on my throne. As I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So... How do you enter the kingdom? Nobody enters the kingdom without a radical, transformative understanding of who they are before a God of radical holiness, other than leanness. Until we see ourselves as wretched and poor and miserable and blind and weak and lame and, a, and completely incapable of navigating any spiritual waters apart from Christ. Until we see that, well, we just, we just won't enter the kingdom. But when you recognize it, when the claws of materialism and comfort and trying to make your home in this world haven't wrapped their filthy hands and arms around you and pulled them into you, and when you can escape the I'm just the next party, let's eat and drink and be merry for tomorrow we die mentality, the carpe diem ideology that our world lives in today until, well, until you, we have to escape that and recognize our spiritual deficit. And if we can escape the clutches of just trying to make our way in this world where everybody speaks well of us and and all things go our way and we've kind of created this nest for ourselves down here that nobody, look, Jesus calls us to a radical abandonment that's full of risk. You want to go down that hole? Full of risk. Of course we're averse to risk. We want everything settled. We want plenty of money. We want everything fine. We want lots of friends and parties and everything else. And We don't ever get in any kind of conflict. We want everybody to speak well of us. That's not what Jesus is calling us to. He's calling us to go into a world that doesn't want us here. The very people that we're seeking to, to see come to a saving knowledge of Jesus are going to turn and they're going to, well, they're going to bite us on the hand and maybe even take our lives. 
You say, how could that be blessed? In closing, I'll just say this. I, you know, I was reading some things. Have you ever read the Book of Martyrs, Fox's Book of Martyrs or anything? You know, some of these guys who were going to the stake, singing praises, leaping for joy out of this very message of leaping, you know, the Sermon on the Plain. There is a certain deep down divine joy when you've walked into that You've thirsted and hungered and recognized your poverty and then you began to be persecuted. There is a deep abiding joy. I can only, and I let me tell you something, I have not experienced it. There are many who have experienced it infinitely more than I ever will. But to the degree that I have suffered for his name, shared the sufferings of Christ, I've got to tell you, I can just say, it's true. It's true. Not only in the future, hope, but even now. So I can go through a week like this, losing precious people, ups and downs and all the vicissitudes of life and circumstances don't dictate this internal sense of destiny in Christ. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this morning. I pray, Lord, that you will drive the very teaching of Jesus deep into our spirits some watching here may never have even entered the kingdom. They've never seen their own deprivation. They don't see themselves. They may be well-fed and spoken of well and philanthropic and even, relatively speaking, good people. And this message, these words of yours, Jesus, are, are an assault on their own senses. Lord, I pray that they would then take that moment to see their own nakedness and turn to you. And if that's you this morning, just tell the Lord, Lord, I am spiritually poor. I'm the thief on the cross. We deserve everything we're getting. But Lord, you, you are the king. Will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? And I'm just telling you, the answer to that is always yes. It's what we'd seen. I stand at the door and knock. If you open, I'll come into you. I'll dine with you. I'll create relationship with you and you will live with me forever. And for some of us who maybe have kind of strayed from the path and just are kind of all about our lives and everything revolves around us and we, we aren't really weeping and mourning for the world around us, well, there's also a place for you to say, Lord, I, I'm coming back. I'm coming back to you, my first love. And then as a community, let's encourage each other. Let's lift up those things that are to be honorable things. I think of Gary Ames and his life and, and uh, he was an honorable man. And let me tell you something, he's in a glorious place, but I'm just telling you an honorable man, he and Barb, uh, their exploits for the kingdom and, and I, I could go into a long list. And let me tell you something, if you've been a recipient of even Church of the Red Door, those two were big, big parts of the early founding of the Church of the Red Door. You are eternally indebted if there's been any pot you know positive thing in your life out of church at the red door these are this is a saint man this is a saint so let's go into a world gary's being comforted but let's let's go into a world a hurting world and spend our lives telling people of the glorious name of jesus hope you had a hope you have a great week we love you. We're coming up again on our June 2nd, as Randy's been telling you. Be praying for that. 
property council meeting and, and many other things. And, and again, I ask you to hold up our family and the Peter family and uh, Peter's family and, and then the Ames as well. Have a great week. We love you. In 